is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Good morning. This is Jazz Shapers. I'm Elliot Moss. Thank you very much for joining. Jazz Shapers is the place where you can hear the very best of the people shaping the world of jazz, blues and soul. And right alongside them, we bring someone in who's shaping the world of business. We call them business shapers. I'm very lucky today because my business shaper is none other than Roland Lamb. And Roland is the founder and CEO at Rowley. And the difference today is that Rowley is a music business. They are transforming the world of playing musical instruments, both from a hardware and a software perspective. And very shortly, in fact, by 10 o'clock, you'll know exactly what I mean, I hope. Lots coming up from Roland. Also, a new element to Jazz Shapers called the New Sessions. It's where we take a look at a hot topic of the moment with Mishkondorea lawyers and Paddy O'Connell will be our host. And this week's subject is GDPR and what it means to you. And on top of all of that, we've got some brilliant music from the Shapers of Jazz, Blues and Soul, including Lee Morgan, Marcus Miller and this from Layla Hathaway. Ghetto boy, it's got to get better. The lovely version of Little Ghetto Boy from Layla Hathaway. Ronan Lamb is my business shaper here on Jazz Shapers. He's the founder and CEO at Rowley. And as I said earlier, they have, um, well, they're transforming to me the world of music and the world of instruments. And it isn't just the stuff in front of you, it's also the stuff behind you, which is technology doing its clever stuff. Roland, hello, and thank you for joining me. Hello, and a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, um, immediately people will know that you are probably from America, uh, and I know because I've got a lovely report here telling me that you're from rural New Hampshire. Um, homeschooled for a part, father a jazz pianist, and you have been playing piano since you were very, very little. Just tell me a little bit about your upbringing, because I think it says a lot of things uh, that define the way you are living your life and indeed have lived your life up until now. Yeah, so uh, as you said, I was born in New Hampshire, um, and I grew up uh, in a very rural environment and was um, homeschooled. So kind of like a lot of my time was, um, you know, playing in the woods, reading books and playing piano. Um, And my father played, but I was largely self-taught. I would just spend time at the piano trying to kind of figure out... uh, the, the chords and um, and scales and whatnot and I, I actually I spent a lot of my uh, first few years playing piano just on the black keys and then gradually I remember I introduced like an F uh, and a C so I was in you know basically into modal jazz from when I was about uh, six I also actually went to school in England even though you know I'm American I came over here when I was ten um, to a school called Summerhill. Uh, which is based in Suffolk. So I've had quite a lot of time, you know, living in this country over the course of my life. Now, I'm going to come on to 2009 in a moment, but I just, I, before we get there, because, I, again, I think this is important, you have spent some time in Japan. You are a, um, a scholar from, I think, Harvard. Uh, You've been a me- faculty member at the Vermont Governors Institute of the Arts. In fact, you were a teaching fellow at Harvard University. Quite a lot of things that happened way before the wacky world of business uh, went on. Give me a little sense of if there is a, a thread of how you got from such a specific area of inquiry and such a relaxed upbringing education, as it were, to eventually setting up a business which indeed involves engineering and things which you're not. Yeah, so it was um, the music. Well, it was 
first love and then the music that brought me into business totally like by chance and totally by surprise um, to be honest I uh, never had even a bit of interest in business um, and you know was something of an anti-capitalist um, you know growing up but um, here I am. But that's all changed now. You've, yeah, well, you've seen the lights. An enlightenment of a different sort, isn't it? Well, you know, um, what happened was I, I decided I would attend the Royal College of Art um, to sort of study design. Um, but at the Royal College of Art, where I was studying with um, a really great designer named Ron uh, Arad, I um, had this idea that I could reinvent the piano because I've been a lifelong piano player. And um, I, I was sitting at the piano and I thought, what if I could make it so I could uh, play the sound of all instruments from the piano? What if I could use very intuitive gestures and, um, you know, to control pitch bend and the timbre of the notes, just like you would when you slide along, you know, the neck of a bass or you pull a string on a guitar or you, you know, change your embouchure uh, with a saxophone to kind of change the sound. I thought I could play something just like a piano, but then use these very simple gestures, um, like pushing into the keys or moving left to right or moving up and down the key um, to kind of change the sound and model the sound. And I'd always wanted to be a singer, but I, I wasn't a good singer. And I actually, growing up, I had tried to learn a bit of bass and a bit of saxophone. So I thought if I could make it so I could play all of the instruments basically in a piano-like format, um, then I could kind of extend my own... Uh, possibilities of expression and um, I got so excited about the idea that I started learning about the engineering and learning about the design and the material science and I just started building prototype after prototype um, and I uh, at first you know they they didn't work they were just these models and I would then overdub the sounds I create videos where it sort of like make it look like I was playing and overdub the sounds um, and then eventually I figured out how to do the electronic engineering and they started to uh, work but they sounded like um, it was a horror film sort of soundtrack, a lot of weird noises and sounds. And then eventually I had uh, some really good prototypes. And at that point, you know, I thought maybe I could sell this to another music company. The upbeat, great sound of Lee Morgan with Mumbo Jumbo. And Roman's confided that he likes Lee Morgan and why not? I do too. Um, so we're talking about these prototypes. And I just for a moment, if anyone gets a chance in your newer computer now, roly.com, have a look at them. Because actually sometimes uh, when anything new comes along and it is genuinely new and it category breaking, it's hard to envisage it unless you've seen it. And I, I urge uh, anyone right now to go online and have a, have a look at that. Um, sounds like such an old phrase, go online, have a look on your phone or whatever it is that's in your hand or nearby. So these prototypes didn't work. You got interested because basically you were on a mission. You were greedy. You strike me as a greedy guy in a good way in the sense you wanted to do all these things. Why can't an instrument do everything I want it to do in my hands? When did it occur to you that it might actually just work and that you definitely were going to do it yourself? Well, I was greedy and I was jealous as well because um, so I, you know, kind of came up through jazz. I played uh, professionally a bit. Um, and piano was the instrument I was good at. And I started out kind of being interested in jazz and blues. And my uh, my father was like, uh, was and is very into Fats Waller and kind of earlier jazz. And so um, in an act of great rebellion, I became interested in slightly later jazz like uh, bebop. Um, but a lot of the expression that you get through jazz piano comes through... Um, 
like a proliferation of notes. You know, with bebop, you you have these very sort of fast and complex lines. Um, And, you know, saxophone players and other soloists use those too, but they can slow it down and deliver a lot of expression through sort of simple uh, notes and then variations in timbre um, as they play. Um, And so... I really, uh, I wanted this for myself to be able to kind of, because musically I was in a place where I was playing very kind of complex jazz, but I wanted to slow it down and simplify it and deliver a great deal of expression. So I, um, with that kind of sense of uh, mission for myself, at first, you know, as soon as I had the idea, um, I knew it could be real. Because what I, what happened was uh, I started taking apart a piano and trying to think about how it would make the keys um, move on a different axis. So it's like you'd press a piano key and then, um, you know, move it left to right. But it, it felt like it would be a bit unwieldy if it was a mechanical instrument. And w- w- at one point, I think I was in uh, India at the time, um, I was drawing pictures of a piano and I um, had this idea that I would, change the uh, separate keys into a wave. Um, So instead of having individual keys, you'd have this kind of continuous wave. And if you played along the tops of the waves, you would be, um, you know, playing the notes of the piano. But then if you would slide along the waves or push into the waves, uh, you would be able to modulate the sound in this very intuitive way. And at that time, even just based on the first sketch, before I built any prototypes or had any idea how I would make it real, I thought, you know, uh, this is going to be a great thing. And soon after, I decided to call it the Seaboard because it rhymed with keyboard and kind of picked up on this idea of the waves. Um, and uh, I just had this sort of inner confidence that this was going to be a great thing. And I think the best way to bring this to life is to have a little listen here. This is a, a good example of the Seaboard in action. was a seaboard in action and um, has actually been used, I believe, by Hans Zimmer, Stevie Wonder, and even the DJ Steve Angelo. How about that? Lots more coming up from my business shape, but that's Roland Lamb, the founder of Roly, and he's, he'll be back in a few minutes. But before that, we've got a brand new element to Jazz Shapers. It's the new Sessions with Paddy O'Connell here on Jazz FM. The new Sessions with Paddy O'Connell in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Jazz FM. Hello and welcome to a brand new conversation helping spot the road bumps for you and your business. It's the news sessions. I'm Paddy O'Connell. Today we're talking about one of the biggest changes to the way our data is stored, perhaps since the birth of the internet. These changes are going to be discussed by two expert witnesses from the law firm Mishkondorea. They are the legal director Nina O'Sullivan and data protection advisor John Baines. Nina, first of all, before we get into the nitty gritty, everyone you know been talking about how their data has been flogged by Facebook. They're worried about what the people know about them. It's never seen, never been hotter, this subject. No, data protection is very much in the news at the moment, and individuals are clearly showing that they have concerns uh, about what's happening to their data 
um, and levels of trust in, in relation to what organisations are doing with their data is really quite low at the moment. Trust is down. Data seems to be flogged all over the place. I mean, John, you're a professional in this field, but do you change the way you do things as a result of all the news we've been hearing? I certainly do. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting as well, Paddy, that you said... Um, uh, about this being the biggest change since uh, the internet came in. I think it's important to realise that this is always a changing landscape that we're working against. So data protection law has been around for decades, um, but the last Data Protection Act in the UK was in 1998. Right. Since then, we've seen such a massive change in how much of our personal information is out there well, in the digital sphere. I mean, you think of 98, that's pre-smartphone, that's pre-the millennium bug, that's pre-Facebook, pre-Twitter. Nina, what is the change we're talking about? GDPR. Okay, so GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation, um, and it's an EU-wide overhaul of data protection rules, uh, and it will apply across the EU, and that includes the UK, uh, from the 25th of May this year. Um, and what it seeks to do is to readdress the balance between individuals and their rights um, and also ensure that organisations are properly respecting those rights. The New Sessions Podcast with Paddy O'Connell. You Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, every Saturday. I meet someone who's shaping the world of business. Sometimes they're in the world of music too. And today is just that person. It's Roland Lamb, founder and CEO at Rowley. And if you were listening earlier, you'd have heard the seaboard in action. The seaboard, as used by famous people like Stevie Wonder um, and Hans Zimmer, who Hans Zimmer actually, uh, Ronan, has a whole team of people, doesn't he? I believe a whole team of people composing. It isn't just him. Yes, he uh, he works with a, a a great team, and it allows him to do um, amazingly ambitious work mm. um, because he can draw on you know so many different sort of sources, and um, you know he records a lot of live music. He works with a lot of um, really excellent uh, musicians and instrumentalists as well. In terms of that collaboration, that's why I mentioned it. You talk about the beginning where you you took concept to execution. Along the way, have there been some critical people that have turned your ideas into reality? And if so, what kinds of people have they been? There's been a whole um, host of different people who have been huge contributors to the business, you know, over the years. And um, the thing that got me into business, because uh, as I said, originally I wasn't super interested, was realizing um, that business can be a very powerful vehicle for um, sociological change. Uh, institutionally, a lot of other um, kinds of organizations have real constraints on them. You know, in the government, there's a set of rules and regulations you have to follow. In academia, um, you know, there's a very fixed kind of institutional structure. In business, um, if you can build something and sell it to people and make money with that, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, you have a lot of freedom in terms of how you organize the business and, and, and what you build and why you build it. And so um, I realized that I, I wasn't just building the seaboard you know, for myself, but that lots of other musicians were attracted to that same idea. Lots of other pianists wanted that same capability to express themselves. But even more so, uh, with a seaboard, you can make it sound like any instrument. You know, if you play a saxophone on it or a cello on it, many people wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a, a cello played um, on the seaboard or a cello, a real cello. If we played a little clip of either of those, some of the listeners may not know the difference. Um, so I thought, 
this isn't actually just about me and like showing off and doing a cool new solo on the seaboard. Actually, if we can take that technology and bring really expressive music uh, into the sort of digital age, then um, we can empower more people to make music. And that, that sort of larger social mission and the opportunity to have that bigger impact is what got me really excited about a business. And I think it's also what brought a lot of the different people on who have been transformative. And that includes, you know, folks who have joined the team, other designers I've worked with, engineers, um, you know, investors, artists, a, a whole, you know, wide group of people who I think, um, you know, really are excited about the products, but even more so they're excited about the mission. I mean, on that, on that mission point, have you found it difficult to convince people that this is just a whole new way of looking at the world of music and music making? Um, because you'll obviously have the people like a Farrell Williams, who's your chief creative officer, for example, who's, a, who's kind of, to me, like a, um, a will-I-am in the sense that he's going to try and do things. He's going to be out on the frontier of where new music goes. You've had a lot of money invested in you, a lot of funds. Uh, people are happily putting their money in, because obviously you've got to make money at some point. It probably isn't making money now, the business, but I'm sure it will. But is it difficult? getting people to buy in to that transformative power that you that you believe this business is going to have? I don't think so. I think with uh, some sort of very traditional musicians, um, they will look at uh, new devices much in the way that, say, a traditional analog photographer might have looked at early innovations in, in photography um, with, you know, DSLR cameras or with sort of early iterations of Photoshop. There was a lot of skepticism, like, will this ever be really like a powerful new way for people to take photographs? Um, and obviously now that sounds a bit funny because even great photographers will use iPhones and take amazing photos. Um, so there's a little bit of that. But generally, the argument for the mission is very, very simple, which is that most people love music. Many people try to learn music and fail and feel frustrated in that failure. Um, and it's because the instruments are very difficult to learn. And the, the, the physical properties of, the, of all you know, traditional instruments are based on um, the acoustics of natural materials like wood and string and so forth. And that just means the actual physical constraints that you have to train your body to, you know, uh, play different chords or inversions or, you know, f uh, whatnot, finger positions, um, is incredibly difficult. Now, if we can deliver a way to make music which is equally expressive and equally deep from an emotional point of view, but that makes it much easier for people to learn and play, surely that's a great thing. Stay with me for more from my business shape today, Roland Lamb. He's um, somewhat shaking up the world of music and music making. Time for more music. This is Marcus Miller with Lonnie's Lament. was Marcus Miller with Lonnie's Lament. I'm talking to Roland Lamb, founder and CEO at Rowley. Over these um, few years since you set this business up, you said yourself that you're not a business guy, uh, but you saw that there's an opportunity through business to transform. You've won tons of awards in design um, and all sorts of related things. It strikes me you're a bit like James Dyson in the sense you just had this vision and you're going to make it. 
who are the other critical people around you that you've needed in terms of skill base? Because obviously running a business and there's a, you've got a fair number of people working for you, you've got a turnover to look after. Give me the top two or three most critical capabilities that sit alongside you to enable you to do what you do best. Well, I should say that over the years I've, you know, become very passionate about running a business and, and, and love doing that and, you know, spend a lot of time on the business side. The majority of my time is now running the business and looking after and overseeing elements of the finance and the operations and, you know, a whole range of different activities around sales and marketing and so forth. And so you've enjoyed that. I mean, you found that that is actually something much more interesting than you initially thought. Yeah, it's super interesting because, again, it's sort of, that we, ha we have a mission, which is to make a, a, a difference in people's lives by empowering everyone to make music. Um, but then how you actually execute on that mission is really interesting. And, and how do you create those changes and create the right partnerships? Um, you know, I think in terms of, um, you know, the particular functions, all of those functions are key. We have to, you know, have the right kind of uh, finance team and operations team, sales, marketing. You know, my personal time is still spent largely on product, um, you know, in sort of inventing new products and uh, working on the design of different products and kind of be engaged in the product experience. So that's still the area that's, you know, closest to my heart and uh, to my skill base. But you know, the whole the whole range of different activities from engineering to quality to customer support, all of those things like shape the overall experience mm. that someone has when they go out and buy a Rolly product. And where does the invention happen best for you when you when you want to really create something new that is hasn't been conceived before? Are you is it a so, is it a solitude little sorry is it a solo effort in the same way that academia is in that is there a similarity that you need your quiet space? Yes, I think that there is an important um, role for kind of individual thought to play in invention. And the, the further um, you're trying to go from what is known, the more important that individual work and accident, um, you know, is in the process. So if you're, if you like just want to take, say, a pair of headphones that's in front of me and make it 5% better, a good, a good method might be to get 10 people in a room and they can all talk about how to make it 5% better. But if you want to like completely reimagine um, you know, the headphone, what it is, what it could be, um, sometimes it, it takes a spark of a, a, a genuinely new idea. Now, of course, that can happen with a group of people um, you know, in a room together and people talking and chatting. And you know, we all, the, the sort of social side is an important component. But often, um, if you're looking for something that's a big jump, uh, from what has existed before, individual thought is important, and sort of accident is important as well. Just the the unexpected um, clash of different ideas, or somehow coming up with something that uh, changes the the grooves of your thinking. As you look forward to the next few years, and what's in store for you and the business? Because to me, it seems that this the world has never changed so rapidly. I mean, I'm sure people have said this before in different times, though. Just looking back even the last few hundred years, this this moment of technological transformation is happening everywhere. And I'm sure it's happened at stages in different businesses. But right now, there's an opportunity to do anything, I imagine. For you, what might anything be? Well, for us, we, we want to empower everyone to make music. And uh, we think that the sort of mobile and software rev revolution that we've seen, the revolution in digital technologies, will come to music. But the key is that um, digital music 
can't just sound like electronic music. Like you have to be able to play jazz, you know, fully in a fully digital way, or rock, or or any you know any kind of instrumental music, classical music. So it shouldn't be limited to a certain kind of genre. Once you can do that um, and make the barriers to entry very low for people, make it into this seamless and smooth process where you can start with your phone, start learning a little bit about the basics of music, gradually you know, build up a simple, easy-to-use kit, easy-to-learn kit to play with. Um, we'll see many, many more people engaging in music. And I think it's actually a really important objective, not just because music is fun, um, but because music is a universal language, and it's very important um, that we develop that as part of developing a global civil society. So, you know, part of the age that we live in is is one of, of great technology, mm. but it's also one where technology is in many ways outstripping um, our kind of ability to have uh, political discourse across sort of national borders. And we've seen that in a lot of different ways right now, where a lot of the, the political debates are, are national, but the technological issues that we're encounter, encountering are global. And, um, you know, for me, the, the, the political side is connected to civil society, and civil society is connected to human communication. And so, you know, people often speak the same language mm. within a given country. And so their politics, you know, are focused within that country. So music's role as a universal language um, is an important part of the emergence of a more a global sense of civil society. And, and I think digital tools can, can make a real difference in that regard. So I am still somewhat of an idealist um, in terms of you know, the function of music in society. And that's why we want to work hard to make sure that our tools can make it easier for everyone to pick up a phone anywhere in the world, start making a little bit of music, share it with their friends or share it with people across other borders and start um, a more global musical conversation. Um, and I think that's really well put. And I hadn't thought about music having that kind of um, role uh, in, as you said, the political discourse, but it must be right. Just really briefly before I ask you um, your song choice, um, and we conclude today's chat. The the record label that you've created, um, again, is testament to the fact that you believe in new music coming through Rody Records. Do you expect to make money on that? Or is that, again, not the point? Can it be funded from other parts of the business? Yeah, that's not the point at all. It's more just that we uh, discover um, people around the world who are making music using our products, and we wanted to create a way that we could help them to get their music out further into the world. And in many cases, then they may move on to other labels, and that, that's fine. It's The point of it is more about um, discovery and, uh, if possible, empowerment of the creators on our platform. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Roland, uh, a true innovator. and uh, I don't say that lightly, fabulous stuff. Um, I really do hope the political discourse is affected by the power of music because, boy, we need something to make things change um, uh, around the world and not just in this country. Thank you so much for being with me. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Um, I chose I'm Confessing That I Love You by Thelonious Monk because uh, Monk was really the uh, artist that inspired the idea of the seaboard, which was it f that sort of the first blush was about wanting to bend the pitch on the piano. And, you know, because um, Monk uses a lot of like, um, uh, you know, 
chromatic conversions in his chords, it's as if he's bending the pitch. You know, there's this sense of where is the, where's the pitch. Um, and I was really, he, he, I think once Monk said, um, or someone said of Monk that he was trying to find the space between the keys. And in a way, my career and my work with the seaboard has been about trying to find the space, you know, between the keys of the piano um, and, the, and this kind of uh, extending that expression outwards. And so uh, since he was such a big inspiration, I thought it'd be lovely to listen to that track. Here it is just for you. That was I'm Confessing by Thelonious Monk, the song choice of my business shaper today, the extremely intelligent and interesting Roland Lamb. He talked about the space between the keys, which is what Thelonious Monk said of um, what he was trying to do. He talked about the sociological impact of music and believing that that would drive his mission, that sense that everyone should be empowered to be able to make music. And really interestingly, in terms of creativity, he believes in individual thought. It's great sitting in meetings with lots of people, but sometimes you just need to be alone. Really, really good stuff. Do join me again, same time, same place. That's next Saturday, 9am sharp, here on Jazz FM for another Jazz Shapers.